Well, it's great to see so many here tonight. It really is good. It was a good number this morning as well. I've been really encouraged. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that uh, Stuart uh, posed a question to us. He said, if the cross is the solution, what does this say about the size of the problem? If the cross is the solution, what does it say about the size of the problem? Well, of course, we only need to look around our world today, a world that's blighted with all of the things that we see on the news each day, terrorism, greed, corruption. This past week, the sad news of a, a young girl being brutally murdered down in, in uh, Bath. A little boy last weekend uh, knocked off his bike and killed in, in London. And, you know, when we look at these things in the world, we know that sin and evil is colossal, isn't it? It's immense. It's such a great problem that only Almighty God has the power to deal with it. We are powerless. Only God has the power to deal with it. And he does it not by a huge show of force, the way that the world might go in and seek to overcome a problem, but he does it through this, through the cross. That's how God does it. He did it through the death of one man. That one man who alone took on the power of Satan and overcame him on our behalf for us. Well, what's at the heart of sin and evil? That's the question I want to pose tonight. What's at the heart of sin and evil? Is it our pride? Is it that desire to hold on to self, to hold on to any power that we think we possess so that we can be recognised, that we can be somebody? So our first question tonight is, who really does hold the balance of power in us today? Who holds that balance of power in us today? Because when we look at power in our world, we know how often power can corrupt. And that's evident right across the board these days, isn't it? From those who hold political power, to the bankers who hold financial power, to the industrialists who can hold uh, people uh, ransom to power, especially in uh, uh, poorer countries. And then there's the pharmaceutical companies who hold power over people's health with the huge costs of medicines today. Well, of course, 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ stood before Pontius Pilate, who represented the power and might of the Roman Empire. Pilate was a man described by one of the Jewish historians of the time as a man who demonstrated power throughout Palestine by being uncaring, by being ruthless, by being a tyrant. Not the sort of way that we'd want our rulers to rule, is it? Well, the first chapter of Graham Tomlin's book was concerned with wisdom. And if you remember, Jesus was on trial before what should have been the seat of God's wisdom, the Sanhedrin. These were God's representatives, or they should have been. But what did they do? They mirrored the world. They mirrored a sinful world. But as powerful as they were, they didn't have the power to pass the death sentence onto Jesus. So they had to send him to the seat of political power, to Pilate, in the hopes that Pilate would do their bidding for them and pass that death sentence onto Jesus. Well, if you've had a chance to read Graham Tomlin's book and you've read that chapter on power, page 59, Graham Tomlin says this. He says, as these two men stood facing one another, Pilate and Jesus, who's the more powerful of these two men? Who's the more powerful? 
Is it Pilate, the representative in Palestine of all the political and the military might of Rome? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? This is what John tells us in his account of Jesus' trial before Pilate. This is what he says. He says, Pilate said, don't you realise I have power to either free you or to crucify you? Can we remember what Jesus said to him? You would have no power over me if it were not given from above. You would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. Well, as we know in our world today, possessing power doesn't almost mean we possess strength of character. And Pilate summed that up, didn't he? Because he gave in to the Jews. He washed his hands of any involvement. And of course, Jesus was crucified. Well, to the Jews at that time, this must have seemed like a real victory. We're the ones who hold power. They'd managed to do away with Jesus by the most awful of public executions that was ever devised by man. Crucifixion. The cross is a symbol of total humiliation and submission to a higher power. And of course that higher power at the time was Rome. I'm sorry if you've had your dinners. I don't want to upset you. But crucifixion, the Romans knew how to crucify people. They knew how to get rid of people. And it was a humiliating exercise. The victim was to be stripped naked for a start off, which was quite humiliating, I should imagine. Then they were paraded through the streets, often carrying the beam of the cross. Then they were laid down and nailed to two pieces of wood. Physically unable to do anything to change their situation. Totally powerless. Hanging there until so exhausted from trying to breathe that they died. So why then, if you were here right at the beginning of our Lent series, did James open his talk by saying that we have a cross as a symbol of our faith? Surely the world would see the cross as a symbol of defeat, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it see it as a symbol of giving in? Not a symbol of victory, but a symbol of powerlessness. Jesus powerless to do anything about his situation. Well, of course, someone who at the time would have seen the cross in that same way was Saul. But of course, on the Damascus Road, when Saul encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he became born again Paul, then he said this, for the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What seemed on that first Good Friday to be a complete and total defeat to all who witnessed the crucifixion was in fact a victory. A powerful victory won on our behalf when Jesus defeated Satan. Confirmed so wonderfully on that first Easter Sunday morning when Jesus was raised to death, to life. The power of God raised Jesus to life. So when we look at power through the lens of the cross, what we see is how God turns upside down the world's view of power. And we're left to ask the question, is it the likes of world leaders? Is it the bankers, the industrialists? Those who, like Pilate, probably don't realise what power they have comes from above 
That's where our power comes from. It comes from above, not from us. Graham Tomlin says this on page 67 of the book. We're all equal before God. Before God, each one of us was born equal. Every one of us. What future intellectual power we might have comes from God in by whatever way he chooses to bless us. And it's given to us not so that we become powerful, it's so that we become a blessing to others. When we strip everything away from ourselves, then that's when we begin to see how we can serve and we can serve God the way he wants us to do. Well, that Bible reading that Jill brought to us a few minutes ago picks up on that. Well, of course, we haven't got time tonight to go through the whole lot of, of Corinthians, and I'm sure at All Saints and here at URC at some point you'll probably go through that wonderful letter. But we get the picture of what this church was like in chapter 3, when Paul says to the church, you're behaving as a church more like the world than God's chosen people. You're behaving more like the world. Well, like us, these early Christians in Corinth had come to Jesus. They'd come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart. But unfortunately, they weren't displaying the fruit of their salvation, thankfulness, humility, love, and grace. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Well, I wonder how good your memories are. Do you remember those young, upwardly mobile people in the 1980s? Do you remember what they were called? Yuppies. Yes, great big phones, if you remember. Mullied haircuts. They were a little group of people that had found new wealth. They'd become quite wealthy. Most of them were involved in the, in the uh, money industry. And, of course, that wealth gave them some degree of power and influence. And it was like a drug. They wanted more. And first century Corinth was very, very similar. And there was like-minded folk in that church, those who'd climbed the social ladder, those who had a degree of power and they wanted a bit more. The problem was that they brought these worldly ideals, this worldly thinking, into the church, and it caused divisions. And Paul asked the question, where's equality in a church that mirrors the world? Where's equality in a church that mirrors the world? A church where disputes break out, where litigations were quite common, where social climbers clung on to certain leaders in the church. And in a society where those regarded as being wise, the philosophers and orators, would seek wealthy patrons to support them, Paul, by his example, turns that all upside down, doesn't he? By working for himself, by working to sustain himself. He's reminding them that he didn't come with any degree of social standing. In fact, Paul came to that church in quite the opposite way. He came not in power, but in weakness. He says this, Christ sent me to preach, not with any degree of wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of power. It's an interesting little thing to think about that, that verse. Unless the cross of Christ be emptied of power. See, when we become preoccupied with self, self-importance, power, whatever we want to call it, then, you know, if we try to bring that message to the cross into the world, the world's not stupid. It'll see right through us. And the power of the cross will be emptied. It really will. What's the saying today? 
We're to walk the talk. We're to walk the talk. But when we look at power through the lens of the cross, we can see what God thinks of all worldly power. Jill read that to us earlier. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that we cannot boast before him, oh, I've done this. Look at me, I've done that. Or I'm this in the church, or I'm that in the church. Paul goes on to say, we can't boast before God. It's because of God that we're in Christ Jesus. Every one of us. He has the one who's become for us wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Well, in the chapter on the power, Graham Tomlin says this, hidden are two important perspectives on the way power operates when viewed through the lens of the cross. Firstly, there's equality, which we've kind of touched on a bit. And secondly, it's through the power of love. That church that God called into being in Corinth was to be inclusive. It was to be a community where ex-slaves could fellowship with professionals, where they could sit and eat together, where they could listen and receive the same word from God. And Paul tells us that God chose to build his church in this way so that we can't boast. We can't boast. Because the plain truth of the matter is that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need any one of us. But he's chosen us. He's chosen us and saved us by his grace to be his people. People who are displaying the same attitude of godliness and humility that we see in Christ and in his servant Paul. That same attitude that Paul displayed to the church in Corinth amongst those who probably thought he wasn't very eloquent, probably thought that he's not really much of a leader. Look at him. He stutters. He's got a problem with his eyes. Not much really, is he? He doesn't look or behave the part. He's someone that can't really cut it in our church that's really going places. But this is what Paul reminds believers everywhere. No matter who they are or what status they may hold. Richard, could we have that first one up, please? This comes from Philippians. I'm sure it's a very familiar little passage when it comes up. There we are. Shall we say this together? I think it should be a good one to say together. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So you see, far from being a place of defeat, the cross is in fact the place where we really see God's power at work. For us here today, the power of the cross should have changed us. The power of the cross should have changed us completely. Through the cross, we should be born again, men and women. Everything else stripped away. New creations born again. So there should be complete equality among us. So this symbol 
the cross that to the world might seem like defeat is in fact the power of God to save us from the curse of sin. And God has placed that same power at work in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we can go and serve him in this world by bringing him the glory. See, when we look at power through the lens of the cross, we see something else as well. We've seen equality, but we also see God's outrageous love for us. Ali touched on that when she spoke earlier before that song. God's love for us, in our hearts, we should reciprocate to him and to this world. And we should go, as Christ calls us to do, into the world to deny self, to turn our backs on personal ambition, wealth, status and power, so that we can go and serve the crucified, risen Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at power through the lens of the cross, it's plain that the power that's bestowed on any one of us is purely transitory. And it's given us a gift in order that we can go and serve others. When all power in this world fades, the power of the cross will stand eternal as a symbol of God's outrageous love for us. Paul sums it up far, far better than ever I could as to who really does hold power and where we see it in all its glory. Richard, can we have that last slide? It's there. This is from Romans 5. You see it just the right time when we were still powerless. Notice that? When we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were powerless. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's come back to that question I began with. Who holds the balance of power in our lives? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we still trying to cling on to power ourselves?